Tonight we will examine the eighth in our series of messages on the subject of infant salvation. And the title of the message tonight is The Character of God Theory, and it will be the second part, having already concluded the first part of the examination of this theory in our previous message. And in that last message, we did examine the theory of infant salvation, which is known as the character of God or the love of God theory. This theory bases its belief of infant salvation upon a view of the character of God, wherein God is viewed as an all-inclusive being of love. Since love is understood as an impulse to bless, it is then reason that God's character is such that he is incapable of punishing any of his creatures. Therefore, all mankind, including infants and idiots, will be ultimately saved. Since our view of God is basic to all life and understanding, this view when embraced, has some very practical effects upon our understanding of God's redemptive purpose. In the previous message, we looked at four of those effects. If one embraces the love of God concept, that God is all love, then here are four of the results of that view. First, it will affirm the universal salvation of all of God's moral creatures there will be no such thing as an eternal punishment of the wicked. Secondly, this view negates the biblical doctrine of the election of a remnant of the human race unto salvation. Obviously, that would follow. Thirdly, this view denies the need for a substitutionary atonement, wherein the wrath and the justice of God are appeased, and satisfied by means of the just suffering in the place of the unjust. And fourthly, this view extends the opportunity of salvation beyond the boundaries of this present life. All four of those implications go beyond the revelation of God's redemptive purpose in the Scriptures. Now, as this view relates to infant salvation, it holds that infants do not stand in need of Christ's atonement or of any of the operations of the grace of God through the ministry of the God Spirit. All infants thus, as well as all other moral creatures, including angels, are then saved by the love of God, whereupon they shall enjoy an eternal state of happiness in which case only can God be satisfied and his own happiness maintained. That is, the view holds that God could never be happy if any of his creatures were not eternally happy like himself. Thus, there could be no such thing as any of his creatures ever suffering his punishment because that would also not only affect their happiness, it would affect the happiness of God as well. Now, I would like to tonight, after having examined this theory in last week's uh, message, to now take this message this evening and show the basic fallacies and the shortcomings of this theory. It does not give us an understanding 
for the salvation of an infant, even though it proposes to do so. And we'll cover two areas tonight to show why this theory is untrue and unreliable. The first is that it shifts the case or the center of God's character from that of holiness to that of love. And the second reason it is false is that it shifts the center of the gospel from Christ's atonement to that of God's love. And we want to show tonight from the scriptures that both of these are false and untrue. That is, God is not infinite love. God is not all love. He does possess love. And he is a great God of love. But he is not infinite love as defined by this view. I'd like to give you four areas to show, first in our approach, that God is not infinite love. First, as that is expressed by philosophy, then that of God's providence, then that of the gospel, and that of the Bible. Four areas to show that the statement that God is all love is not a statement grounded in fact. If God were infinite love, then he could be nothing else. God possesses love, but he is not infinite love. His love is infinite, but there's more to God in his being than just that of love. And if he were infinite love, then he could be nothing else. Let's illustrate by working our way from man to God. Man was made in the image of God. I am a human being. I possess finite love, that is, limited love, because I'm a limited creature. But it would be preposterous to define Jim Gables as being finite love. There's more to me than just love. I have a conscience wherein I can discern right from wrong. I have an intellect. I have a heart. I have many aspects of my being which I know are distinct. I have a will wherein I can choose to act in certain ways. And I know that that is distinct from my feelings or my emotions which comprise love and hate. So that because I am aware of these distinctions in my own nature, you could not define me as a creature comprised of finite love. I have love, but I am not all love. Therefore, when you work from my image, being made in the image of God, God possesses love, but he also possesses wisdom. He also possesses justice and mercy and goodness and truth and grace. He has a conscience. He has sensibilities in his feelings. He has a will. But you cannot just put all of those things into one essence and say, God is infinite love any more than you could put all of my distinctions into one essence and say that as a human being, I'm just limited love. You would not have to be around me very long to discern the truth of that. 
I possess love, but it is a limited love. But you shall find out all the other perfections or imperfections uh, to that degree that you come to know me. So, therefore, if we reduce God to just that of love only, then we ultimately reduce God to that of nothingness. For example, God has a conscience of right and wrong, and he can make judgments on what is right and wrong. But if he did not possess this conscience, then there is no way that he could pronounce that this would be right and wrong if he were only love. To just reduce God to love would to break down all distinctions in the very character of God himself. Now, God not only has a conscience to discern right from wrong, but he also has a sensibility or a feeling in his nature. And all sensibility is divided into two areas, that of love and its contrast, hate. You cannot, and listen carefully, you cannot love something unless you hate the contrast. That's an impossibility. You cannot love tomatoes unless you hate weeds. You just can't do that. In order to be a sensible being, you must possess equal capabilities of loving and hating. And this is what pleases God, because he has that ability not only to discern good from evil, but also to sense it. And he is pleased with that in the character of his son. Turn with me to Hebrews and let us see that. The book of Hebrews, chapter 1. God loves righteousness and he hates iniquity. Is that not what the Bible teaches? And his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, does always the will of God. In Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 8, But unto the Son he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness, and what? Hated iniquity. You see, those are moral opposites. And everything that has a characteristic has an opposite to it. Christ loves that which is right, and he hates the opposite, that which is sinful. Now, if God were just a being of all love, then he would not have the capability to discern good from evil or the sensibility to be able to feel it within his own nature. For example, God, if he loves anything, he must hate the opposite. If he loves the good, he must hate the evil. If he loves holiness, he must hate sin. If he loves Christ, he must hate who? The devil. If he loves heaven, then he must hate hell. And all that contrast, those are moral opposites. And you cannot love both or else you break down the whole rational understanding of distinctions. I would ask you tonight, does God have the same feelings in his heart for the devil that he has for his son? Hmm? I had a man tell me that he did one time. 
that God loved the devil just as much as he loves his son, because God is all love. That's almost, well, that is blasphemy. That's blasphemy, to say that God has the equal feeling for his son that he has for the devil. Those are moral opposites. Christ loves righteousness and he hates evil. And the devil's the very opposite. He loves sin and hates righteousness. So in order for God to be a sensible creature and remain his rationality or retain his rationality, he must have the ability to discern good from evil. And he must have the feeling that when there is an object which is evil, he can hate that object. And when there is an object which is good, he can so love that object. If he ceases to possess that, he ceases to be God. He loses his capacity as a rational being, and thus he becomes just an infinite infant. An infant is a being which has no power of rationality. And thus, all God would be, if he were a God of love, is just an infinite infant with the only ability to coo. And that's it. But God is not that type of a being, and philosophy proves it to be the case. In our sensibility to love that which is good and to hate that which is evil, this is imperative because if one only possesses all love or all hate, they cannot appreciate the difference in the objects which are worthy of that. For example... Let's say that here is a lion, and we put before that lion a beautiful little lamb, a creature which would manifest the loveliness and the beauty and the goodness of the beast of the field. But what kind of a response is that lion going to have toward that lovely, good beast? He cannot appreciate its beauty because his nature is only that of wrath toward that. On the other hand, let us suppose that here were a father which had a lovely baby toddling around out in the yard, and this father had a nature which was only capable of love. And that baby begins to toddle over there toward the edge of the yard, and there suddenly crawls out of the woods a deadly rattlesnake. Now, seeing as how that father possessed only the capacity of love, he could not discern any appreciation but for the safety of his own child. For he must love the rattlesnake with equal capacity that he loves his child. And thus you would recognize very quickly what would be the result of that. Thus God is not a being of infinite love and love only. If that is the case, he loses his whole capacity as a moral being. And he becomes an infant, incapable of discerning good from evil. What was it that Satan said to Adam and Eve in the garden when he deceived them? He said, now God does know that in the day that you eat thereof, you shall become as what? God's knowing good from evil. Now, that's a capacity of a moral being 
to discern good from evil. If God be only infinite love, then that breaks down all capacity of discernment. But not only does philosophy refute the view of an all-encompassing God of love, but the very observance of the providence of God in this world shows otherwise. As you look at the providence of God, which is both a revelation of the character of God, we are introduced to both the severity and the goodness of the character of God in providence, are we not? For example, turn to Romans chapter 11 and verse 22. Romans 11 and verse 22. Behold, therefore, the goodness and severity of God on them which fell severity, but toward thee goodness. If thou continue in his goodness, otherwise thou also shalt be cut off. Now here we see not only the goodness of God, but we see the severity of God. Severity falling upon some objects and the goodness of God finding objects of another sort. So as a result of this, the providence of God, by observing it, reveals both the goodness of God and the severity of God. Someone's car goes out of control and rolls toward the edge of a cliff and suddenly it catches on a rock and keeps its occupant from plunging to certain destruction, and the occupant gets out, and if they have any sense at all, they will get down and pray and thank God for his goodness. But we also see the severity of God in the same situation. We see another car which goes over the cliff. With every rose there is a what? A thorn. With every... Day of sunshine, there is a corresponding day of thunderstorms. With every disease, there is a blessing of health. Indeed, if we learn anything from providence, we learn that life is comprised of a mixture of adversities and blessings, do we not? Now, these all but reflect the severity and the goodness of God revealing that God has multiple aspects of his nature, not just that of infinite love. But then we go not only from philosophy and providence, but let us go to the gospel itself. The gospel itself reminds us that God is not infinite love in that it addresses itself to sinners. Sinners who are under the wrath of God. You cannot preach the gospel without reminding people of the wrath of God. And every time the true gospel goes forth against the background of that gospel, it implies that there are people who need that gospel, who need to be saved. Saved from what? From the wrath of God. So the very preaching of the gospel negates against the idea that there is a God of infinite love. Let's go to John chapter 3. John chapter 3 and verse 35 and 36. Here we read, The Father loveth the Son, 
and hath given all things into his hand. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. The Son is the gospel, the message of the person and work of Christ, and the Father loves the Son. But whoever does not love the Son so as to receive him in the fullness of the gospel, the Bible reminds that person that present tense they are abiding under the wrath of God, not the love of God. Beloved, it is a delusion for ministers to give their hearers the impression that as long as they are outside of Christ, they are objects of the love of God. That is a false representation of the very heart of the gospel. If they're under the love of God, they don't need Christ. Therefore, we must warn men, the Apostle Paul says, and exhort men to flee to Christ in the gospel. Why? Because as long as they are outside of Christ, the wrath of God presently abides upon them. The gospel itself negates against the idea of God being infinite love. Not only does philosophy discard this idea and providence declare that it be not true, and the gospel reveals it, but the Bible itself affirms that God is not infinite love. Turn to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9 and verses 11 through 13. If God be infinite love, then all objects in his creation are to be recipients of that infinite love. Romans chapter 9 and verse 11, here though we find clear affirmation that this to be contrary to fact. For the children, being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God, according to election, might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth, it was said unto her, The elder shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I what? Have I hated? Now, if you believe that God is infinite love, you're ready to get to your feet on that verse. You're ready to say, hold it, Mr. Speaker. Wait just a minute. That's unfair. That's not my God. Well, look what verse 14 assumes. What shall we say then? Yeah, we're anticipating an objection. Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. And then he goes on to explain why. But the clear statement is, in verse 13, that Jacob was loved and Esau have I hated. Now, beloved, say what we may, here's at least one person that was hated by God. Here's one. And if one, why not more? Why not more? Esau was not an object of the love of God. Time will not permit us to go in to determine how this love fell upon one and the wrath upon the other. But here is a distinction affirmed and revealed by the Scripture that God is not infinite love, that not all creatures are the object of his love, but some are the objects of his wrath and of his hatred. And that is a just hatred. It is an ugly thing. Hatred falls upon that which is repugnant to God. 
That which is evil and ugly, God hates. That which is good and lovely, God loves. And God must maintain those moral distinctions of good from evil. I'll leave it for you tonight to determine in how in the world could God love you? How could he love me? We being no different than Esau. Sinners. How could he possibly love us being repugnant and evil and unlovely? The scriptures present to us that holiness, not love, is the center focus point of God's character and from which all his attributes and actions are but an expression. Follow me here just a moment as I draw the image in your mind of that of a wheel or a circle. The center of that circle is the essence of that circle. You can take a line and draw anywhere from the circumference to the center, and it will enter or end up right in the center, like the spokes on an axle. The center focus point which the scriptures introduce us to God is that of his holiness. And out of his holiness, all of his other attributes reveal and express themselves. God possesses love, but it is a holy love. God possesses mercy, but it is a holy mercy. God possesses wrath, but it is a holy wrath. And so on, with all of his attributes, as they work to outward to be revealed to us, they are anchored in the center focal point of that being the holy character of God. The character of God theory known as love puts love as the central essence of God. And therefore, in order to reconcile what is going on in the world, everything must be reconciled to that of love. Thus, if love be the central essence of God, then there can be no such thing as eternal punishment of the wicked. But, beloved, if we believe that holiness is the central character of God, then all that goes on in the world can be justified. Because God is a holy God. He will do that which is right. Isaiah chapter 6, we have there the angels around the throne. And what do they cry out? Love, love, love. Is that right? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. That is the central essence of God's very character is holiness. And from his holiness is expressed all of the other manifestations of his character. His love flows out of that. His wrath flows out of it. And all of his very being we have introduced to us flowing out of that fountain of holiness. You take a pure fountain of water forming a pool, and all the streams running out from that pool will come in contact and manifest themselves by the purity of that water in that pool. Thus, all of the actions and the attributes of God's character will manifest themselves as they flow out of the essence of his being, that being holiness unto himself. The final universe, when everything is completed, will be a completed expression not of the love of God, 
but of the holiness of God. That's why there will be eternal punishment of the wicked and the eternal bliss of the saved. The saved will be an expression of the love of God, of the grace of God, and the mercy of God. But in that final universe, there is also going to be a state of eternal punishment for the wicked. And that will be an expression of his wrath and his justice. But it will be a holy justice and it will be a holy love. So therefore, all things can be harmonized in the very character of God if we start from the presupposition given to us in the Scriptures that God is holy. But if you start with the presupposition that God is in essence love, you cannot reconcile the providence of God, the gospel of God, the Bible, and the eternal state with that of the essence of God's love. But otherwise you can when you see how the Scriptures reveal to us God's holy character. Well, what is holiness then? It is important that we understand then what holiness to be. The Hebrew word, kadash, and the Greek word, hagios, both mean the same thing. It's defined simply in one word, a separatedness, an apartness, that which is set apart from the rest. It denotes a quality in that object which is different from objects of like value. In the realm of morals, it denotes that which is pure as separate from that which is impure. Holiness in the realm of religion denotes that which is sacred and separate from that which is secular. That is, we say there's a church building. That's a holy building. It is used exclusively for religious purposes as opposed to secular pursuits. In theology, though, holiness signifies that which is sinless and separated from that which is sinful or tainted. In the scriptures, there are holy places. Can you name some of them in your minds? What about the tabernacle? What about the temple? What about the city of Jerusalem? Those were all holy places, sanctified places set apart, wherein a certain religious purpose was to be carried out. In the scriptures, there were separate days or holy days. Can you think of one? What about the Sabbath? What about the other sacred or holy days in the scripture in which people performed religious exercises? Not only were there holy places and holy days, but there were holy seasons, or rather holy persons, in the Bible. Israel, the priest, prophets, kings, ministers, Christians. These are all classes of people. Distinct, set apart our being holy, which made them different from the rest of mankind. There's a holy culture revealed to us in the Bible. There's the church, the ordinances of the church. There's prayer, praise, preaching. All of these duties set apart for the promotion of religious life. 
as contrasted to playing ball and going fishing and doing these things. These are holy duties set forth in the Scripture. Now, when you take this distinctiveness and you apply it to God, then it means that every attribute in God is set apart to express his own perfections. Now, is that so difficult to understand? Every aspect of God is holy. It has been set apart to express his perfections. Is God a God of love? Then that attribute will be set apart by his holiness to manifest itself. Are there objects which are deserving of wrath and judgment? Then God's characteristic of his very nature will manifest itself as it flows out of his holy character. Holy, holy, holy is the cry of the angel. And that's the cry of the central theme of the Bible as it presents to us the character of God. Now, we know what we mean by the nature of the lamb. It's that of gentleness. We know what we mean by the nature of the lion. It's that of fierceness. Then we should now then know what we mean by the nature of God. It is that of holiness. He is set apart in all of his attributes to manifest his holy perfections unto his creation. And he needs objects for all of those perfections to be manifested. Someone says, well, Brother Jim, I can understand that if why God allowed sin to enter into the world, if he had a perfect hatred of sin, then his wrath could be justly pronounced upon those objects which were sinful. But is that the only reason he allowed sin to enter into the world? No, the Bible says that where sin abounded, what? Grace did much more abound. How would we have ever known that God had a perfect attribute of grace if grace was not to be manifested upon an undeserving object? That's holy grace. That's holy wrath. It's holy justice. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 14 says, Without holiness, no man shall what? See the Lord. God is infinitely holy. And the chief end of his existence is the glorification and enjoyment of his own attributes. So that God can only love and enjoy that which he himself loves and enjoys. So if you want to enter into the very being of God himself, you're going to have to please him by loving what he loves and hating what he hates. Without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. Infants, now listen carefully, then, in light of this, are born with a sinful nature. I trust we've established that by now. And they are, by that very nature, repugnant and ugly to God at the very center of his being. And thus they stand in desperate need of Christ's atonement and the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. 
God cannot love that which is evil and ugly. And an infant is born with a nature which makes it evil and ugly in the sight of God. Therefore, it needs to be washed by the blood. It needs the ministry of the Holy Spirit of God. It is not just exposed to some general love of God. It comes into this world as an ugly, evil thing, which is going to manifest itself in an attempt to destroy its fellow man and take over the very throne of God. Therefore, the very holiness of God must so act. God cannot love that which he hates. Therefore, that infant stands in need of the atonement of Jesus Christ and of the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. The question, when an infant is born, is not, how can love bless this child? The question, are you listening, is how can holiness tolerate this child? That's the question in the Bible. It is not how God's love can be satisfied, but how can God's holiness be appeased and honored? That's the mystery of the gospel. Now, when you begin to work into that, you're making some progress in the understanding of the redemption of the Lord Jesus Christ in the gospel. When you begin to see that God cannot love an object which is unholy and repugnant to the very center of his being, because his holy wrath must fall upon that object, then you begin to see mystery of all mysteries of how in the world can God then be just and let that individual into his very presence. And yet we define in the gospel that he can be just and the justifier of him that believeth in Jesus. Yes, I declare unto you with all of my being that those infants need to be washed in the blood of the Lamb and regenerated and sanctified by the Spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ. For by nature they possess a nature which is repugnant and evil in the sight of God. Now, oh, how that offends fallen man. How that offends someone who feels that God is such a God of love that he must love all. My friend, if you do not yet grasp that, it means that you're like the illustration of the father and that of his child and the rattlesnake. You can't make any discernment between good or evil, between right or wrong. If you are agreed that the Scriptures teach that infants are born with a sinful nature, then they are not a lovely thing when viewed from God's sight. They must be brought into the atonement of Christ, wherein they can be loved and cleansed. Christ loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might wash it, and sanctify it by the washing of the water, by the word. Infants can be saved, as we have made it clear, but they are saved through the precious ministry of Jesus Christ, not by a general sentimental love of God. Now, secondly, this view not only shifts the center of God's being from holiness to that of love, but it shifts the center of the gospel from that of the substitutionary death of Christ 
to the love of God. Now, what is the center of the gospel when you start reading your Bible? What is contained therein as you begin to read it? And you won't be reading it very long until you find that the center of the scriptures is the gospel. Do you agree with me? And what is the center of the gospel? But the atonement of Jesus Christ. And the center of the atonement is the death of Christ. The scriptures have the gospel for a center. The gospel has the atonement for its center. And the atonement has for the central focus the substitutionary death of Christ. If you shift that center away, you'll come up with a secondary emphasis. And thus, what this view does, it shifts the center of the gospel, which is the atonement of Christ, to the side and replaces it with the love of God as being the center to focus upon. Are you putting two and two together? Do you see why we can have cars driving around the city saying, smile, God loves you? Hmm? Do you see why you can pick up gospel tracts which start with this, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life? Do you see why that has come to pass? That would not have been tolerated with the preaching of the apostles. They did not go out with a camel caravan with a sign strapped on the side of it saying, Smile, God loves you. Noah didn't have any sign like that on the side of the ark either. The gospel is a message about an atonement which satisfies the wrath of an incensed God. And when you shift the center of that gospel from a substitutionary atonement to that of the love of God, you replace it with a false gospel, which leads to the delusion of the souls of many. And that is what is taking place today. Everywhere in the Old Testament, you have the sacrificial system revealing a blood theology in contrast to a love theology. Take the high priest on the Day of Atonement. What's he doing? He must go into the presence of a holy God, spend time there and come back out and pronounce forgiveness and benediction upon the people. But my friends, dare he not go into the presence of that God without blood, without blood. There must be a sacrifice slain. For without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. The Old Testament everywhere introduces us to a substitutionary sacrifice which is designed to appease the wrath of an incensed God so that an unholy creature can enter into the presence of God without being destroyed and be pronounced forgiven and go back out to a life of joy and happiness and living in the peace of God. All of the Old Testament introduces us to a blood theology, not just a love theology. 
Jesus Christ himself explained his own mission into the world as that of not primarily revealing divine love, but of propitiating a holy God by his atoning death. Turn with me to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10 and verse 45. What did Jesus come into the world to reveal? And I repeat, he himself does his own defining. He does not define himself coming into the world to primarily reveal the love of God, but of revealing a sacrifice in his death to propitiate the wrath of God. Mark chapter 10 and verse 45. For the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a what? A ransom for many. A lutron. Jesus said, I did not come just to try to produce a moral effect upon some people, but the primary goal of my mission was to come to give a payment unto God, a ransom. Even the boys and girls here tonight should be able to understand that when someone gets kidnapped, then they demand a ransom note. They demand payment in return for the release of the person. Jesus said, I came into the world to give a payment unto God, to satisfy his holy wrath, to propitiate him so that he might be merciful unto sinners. That's what I came to do. His own definition defines that. Every time we partake of the Lord's Supper, If we partake of it carefully, the primary thing which we are not thinking about is not the love of God, but it is, as often as you do this, you do it in what? Remembrance of me. And what is it? What do those two elements tell us? The bread. This is my body, which was what? Broken for you. That's substitution. That's a payment made unto an angry God that he might be appeased. This blood was shed for you, all right? That's sin, that's a sacrifice, that's a bloody thing. You say, I don't like that. My friend, then you will not love the presence of God, for he demands a blood sacrifice that life be poured out before a sinner can be accepted in his sight. Do you not then see why the preaching, the true preaching of the cross as a substitution is an offensive thing? Do you not see why the songwriter has it so correctly? It's an emblem of what? Suffering and shame. If I preached a love of God theory of the cross, my friend, this building would be full tonight and running apart at the seams. But when you preach a blood theology... And it's offensive to the natural man. He wants everything lovely and beautiful and sentimental. But there's nothing lovely and beautiful and sentimental about a man pouring out his life, the blood dripping from his body on an old rugged cross. What in the world is going on there? Jesus said, I'll tell you what's going on. I'm appeasing the wrath of God in heaven. 
That's the center of the gospel. You remove it and replace it with the love of God, and you got another gospel. Now, let's move on, though. The preaching of the apostles in the book of Acts also bears out that the central focus of the preaching of the gospel is the substitutionary atonement. Acts chapter 2, verse 36, Peter declares, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom you have crucified, both what? Lord and Christ. Many saviors come to their throne only after shedding the blood of others. How many political systems have felt that they were to be the savior of the world, but in order to do so, they had to kill all the other people in the other political system? Hitler felt he was the savior of the world. Are you aware of that? You say he was a fanatic. He was a deranged man. Perhaps that he felt like he was the savior of the world and that the Jews were an offshoot that were destroying and defiling the bloodline. So eliminate the Jews and you'll have a pure race. Nearly all of your great leaders have felt that if they could wipe out certain viewpoints, then they could establish their kingdom. But, beloved, the Lord Jesus Christ established his kingdom as Lord, not by killing others, but by dying himself. You hath he crucified, or you crucified him. So that the apostles preached Christ as Lord and Messiah in connection with a cross, him dying in the place of sinners. The teachings of John, John chapter 13 or 15, verse 13, greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his, what? His life for his friends. You want love defined? There it is. Laying down his life for his friends. First John 4.10, let's connect that, same writer. Herein is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, I submit to you, if you take away the interpretation of the love of God there, you have no love. Here is the love of God. God sent his son to propitiate, to render God merciful. That's the same word that's translated mercy seat. There in connection with the Old Testament, where the blood was shed. When I see the blood, I will then pass over you. But if I don't see that blood, the death angel's coming. All right? It's the same word that when the publican went up to the temple to pray, he said, God, be merciful. God, be propitious unto me. And the only way God can be merciful to an undeserving object is to have his wrath appeased, and that's through the sacrifice. Herein is love. If you take away the sacrificial element, the love of God falls to nothing but a sentimental understanding. So the scriptures are clear. Revelation 1, verses 5 and 6. Unto him that loved us and gave, or rather washed us from our sins in his own, what? Blood. There's the definition of biblical love. He loved us and washed us 
I'll have to clarify. My kids correct me on that. Washed us. I'm getting too southern. Washed. I cannot get that down. It's washed. You go out and wash your hands. You don't wash them. But I'll get it. I'll get it straight. I know they're correct. Unto him that washed, washed us in his own blood. Now, do you see the connection? He gives us love, and then he defines it. What is love? It's a washing us from our sins in his own blood. That's the context in which the Bible defines the love of God. Now, I submit to you something on this basis, and that is this. The Bible knows nothing of a general love of God for any creature outside of that love which has been purchased by the atonement of Jesus Christ. If you are to be loved, you must have that love purchased by a substitutionary atonement rendering the wrath of God appeased wherein God now can have an impulse to bless that object. We are loved in the atonement. You do away with that atonement, and you have no real biblical love. The teaching of the Apostle Paul, Galatians chapter 6, verse 14. Let me quote it. Don't turn there. God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. The cross was the center of Paul's understanding of the Christian religion. Everything about religion, as it had been revealed to Paul, was centered in the cross. That's why he could say, I was determined to preach nothing but Jesus Christ and him, what? Crucified. The cross is the central hub of all the revelation of God in the scripture. And that cross speaks of substitution wherein God's wrath is appeased, and now his holy love can be demonstrated towards sinners in the cross of Christ. You want to understand the Christian religion? You can't understand it without the cross. The Christian religion is the only religion for sinners. Did you know that? I wish I had time to confirm that tonight. All other religions begin with people as being having an element of righteousness, and then if they just perform certain deeds, they'll render themselves righteous unto God. The Christian religion is a religion for sinners. And that religion is based on an atonement. I say again, the Scriptures know nothing about a love of God for any member of this fallen race, which love was not purchased by the atonement, and made available by the blood of Jesus' cross. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Every time you have love defined, it's in connection with the cross. Do you see then why that I cannot tell you tonight that if you refuse the cross of Christ, I cannot assure you that you are under an object of the love of God. You are evil and repugnant to God until you are placed in Christ in that substitutionary work in the cross. Come to Him. Come to Him. Now, how does all this then relate to that of the infants? 
I close with this statement. When any minister who professes to be a Christian stands beside the coffin of a little child out in the cemetery and gets all sentimental about a general love of God for that little baby, but fails to relate the death of that little one to the atonement of Christ, they are not giving any biblical hope to those grieving parents. Do you want a biblical hope if you have a child that dies? Then don't go to a generalized, sentimental view of the love of God. You need a view of Christ's death as it relates to that little child. And I'm glad I have one to offer. I'm glad I have a hope to be able to give to young parents, middle-aged parents, and elderly parents upon the death of a child. There is hope, but that hope is in the atonement of Christ and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So therefore, this character of God view, since its presupposition is of its very nature false and incorrect in believing that God has such a love and is such love that he could never punish any of his creatures, seeing that that is false, then that very position collapses and offers no hope for the salvation of an infant. So that we can say again in conclusion that our hope for the salvation of little babies is built on nothing less than what? Jesus' blood and righteousness. They can be loved in Christ, but they need him just as any sinner needs him. If they be born with a sinful nature, that nature is repugnant to God and needs to be washed in the blood and cleansed and sanctified by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Let us not then get all sentimental and try to get carried away with some view of the sentimental love of God, which in essence negates the very being of God and makes him some type of an infinite infant incapable of discerning sin from righteousness. But let us go afresh to the cross and apply the teachings of the cross to those infants who die in infancy. Let's close in prayer.